So, tonight is really packed, simply because I don't have much time left. <laughs> it kind of all sped up at the last minute. I was kind of timing this out, and I was supposed to have a few more weeks, and then things changed two weeks ago. Um, so I didn't have as much time to go through the rest of it as I thought. So, serves my right for stretching it. No, there's just so much there to go through. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this opportunity to gather again. And Father, help us to focus in on this concept of dispensation and the concept of rapture, uh, which is taught in Scripture. Uh, We thank you again for this time, for the opportunity to be together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we'll review a little bit of what we talked about. And uh, that's why I gave you the one set. The other really is for reading at home sometime. Or if I get really boring tonight, feel free to read it. Okay, so the first one is something that we talked about before as we went through Daniel. And it's a pretty good overline because on that one, um, they do give you uh, a good outline of where you can find some of the material to read yourself. In Scripture, as you can see, we're going to spend some time here. That's probably where we'll end off in regards to that. So that was a good overview. I thought it worthwhile to go through. Uh, because we've talked about the the 490 years sort of here, talked a little bit about the break, and then uh, we talk a little bit about the rapture uh, this evening. And did I run out of? Okay, there we go. We also I just went one right. Okay, we also talked about dispensations. Um, I gave you that too. This one goes into the full seven dispensations, as you can see. So it talks about the age of innocence, conscience, human government, promise with Abraham. You can see some of the larger events, uh, the curse here. So sort of the Garden of Eden, the curse in between the curse and the flood. Then human government. And then we have the Tower of Babel. We have the promise. We have the bondage. We have Moses and the law. Uh, that takes him to the end of the prophets, um, Christ on the cross, grace or the church age. Um, we have the rapture here, and then the return of Christ here, with tribulation being the marker, and then the thousand-year reign, great white throne, and then eternity future. I <clears throat> we'll talk about where this was popularized. I, I really just kind of going along with the three of them. I kind of lump it in. We have a time of the Gentiles here. We have the, the promise and Israel as a nation here. Then we have the, the church age. And then the end of the church age, we have the $1,000 thousand year reign of Christ. I'm sure it's worth more than $1,000. And then uh, eternity future. Um, but there are those that will hold distinctly to seven different ones. I, I don't think you need to. So when we talk about dispensations, just a reminder, who can tell me what a dispensation is? It's a period of time, but what makes it a period of time? Right, the way God deals with man. So some people break it up, and the reason they break it up so finely is they say, well, in the time of innocence, that was one particular way that God dealt with Adam and Eve, right? So, anybody here have God walk with them literally? In the, no? No? Either do I. I've never sensed that. 
But Adam and Eve were very much different, right? God comes to them and he speaks to them. So it was a different sort of time. And we have the, 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 the curse and the death, and then things change in this period of conscience. Then God deals a little bit differently with human government. That's why I hold it. I might split that up to pre fall, post fall, but it's just talking about how God deals with us. So God dealt with people of faith quite differently prior to the cross than he does after the cross, which will be different again when we come to the thousand year reign, the millennial. Right? So it's just talking about how God deals with us, and that's how they break up a dispensation. So, when it comes to dispensationalism, one of the things to remember, a dispensationalist, someone who believes God deals differently with mankind at different times, rejects the replacement theory. Now, when somebody talks to you about the replacement theory in the New Testament, what they're talking about is that Israel has been replaced by the church. And there's a particular reasoning. When they say that, it gives away some of their presuppositions to what's going to happen in the future. That would usually indicate to me that they're an amillennialist, that they, we believe, they believe we're in the millennium now because they reject the, the, the belief that there's a, a future national Israel. So we both agree the church begins at Pentecost, which is fine, but I do not believe that the church is a substitute for the nation of Israel. We're going to talk more about that as we go on. Okay, <clears throat> there's a belief in national Israel. The old covenant promises made to Israel are still to be fulfilled in the future. Israel will experience a, a future restoration and salvation. And for many, many years, most of the church age, people did not believe this. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. So according to Feinberg, um, the difference between dispensational and non-dispensational hermeneutics is found in three areas. So hermeneutics is just a fancy way of saying how you study the Bible, what your approach is to studying the Bible. So when people come to the Bible, if you're a dispensationalist, if you believe in different dispensations compared to somebody who doesn't believe in dispensations, you will approach the Bible a little differently. So one of the ways is this relationship with progress of revelation to the priority of one testament over the other. Remember way back when we started talking about this, one of the things I warned you, I, I, I'll lose you from time to time? That's okay. I'm not trying to lose you. I'm just trying to rub you up against some wet paint so that you hear this a few times, you'll go, oh, I've heard this before. Oh, it's... So I may not make any sense, but three or four years down the road, Pastor Todd or somebody else will teach you and you go, wait a second, I get it now. Because I still do that. 30-some-odd years after graduating from seminary, go, well, that's what that professor was talking about. So don't feel bad, okay? It's taken me 30, 40 years to get some of the stuff. It's like, oh, I get it. So we're going to talk about that. So priority of testaments um, is how you interpret the Old. So some people will interpret the Old Testament, and they will look at the New Testament, and they go, oh, the New Testament... I should be going this way so it makes sense to you. So the New Testament... Oh, it all interprets the Old Testament for me. But when they do that, they put priority on the New Testament and they discount why it was written originally. And I think there's a danger in that. 
you have to approach the Old Testament and say, why were these books written? And we did this when we went through the Minor Prophets. Why were these books written? And what did this book say to the people that were, were, were preached to or, or handed that book? So if you were in the time of Hosea, and you're reading the book of Hosea shortly after his life and all the rest of that, or you're listening to Hosea, there's real meaning there. And we can't discount that. When you get into priority of testaments, there are people that will go to the New Testament and say, well, this is exactly what it meant. They just didn't get it. And it's like, no, they had to understand something. What did it mean to them? And I'm very weary. Unless one of the apostles or Jesus Christ specifically says something is a type, I will not call something a type in the Old Testament. People will try to find all these things and they call, well, this is a type. This is a representation of this because we see it in the New Testament. I think there's a danger in that because unless it specifically tells us, you're going to spend all your time and you're going to miss what the Old Testament is trying to tell you because you're finding all these types and go, oh, this is a type and that's a type and oh, this is a type. You drive yourself bonkers. So if it doesn't tell you it's a type in the New Testament, don't worry. I've heard all kinds of sermons, and it's like, what? I don't think it says that. that. That's where do you? And it's because they're reading back into the Old Testament, and you have to be leery. If it says it's something, fine. You can go back and you can pick it out. But if it doesn't, be leery. It's like these preachers. I won't name any because you might know some of them, and I don't want to get name calling. But that they have wonderful things to say, but what they do is they give you their opinion and then they tack on all these scriptures to it. So it sounds religious, but it really is just their opinion because they're taking verses out of context. And that's not what we want to do. Okay, so second, the understanding and implications of the New Testament, New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And that is tricky, and that's what we're talking about, to understand how the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. And it's not easy. When I preach from here, from when I've been preaching here, I have a, one book that I'll go to, sort of a guide resource, that all it does is talk about the Old, Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. It's about this thick. <laughs> and it's like, okay, how are they using that? Why are they pulling it? And, of course, they have all kinds of leeway, more leeway than I do. Why do they have more leeway as New Testament writers to point to things in the Old Testament and say, hey, this is a type, or this is what was meant by that? Why can they do it and I can't? So I could go to the Old Testament and say, well, this represents Christ. But I might not find that anywhere in the New Testament that says that. Why was it legitimate for the New Testament writers to point to the Old Testament and go, well, this represents Jesus Christ. Why is it legitimate that they do it, but I can't go find a verse and say, oh, that represents Christ. Can't you see it? Because the New Testament writers were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God was guiding what they were writing toward us. So when they were writing, they were guided by the Holy Spirit And so when they were looking, and it even talks about this um, 
when Christ was returned, uh, resurrected, he sits down with them and he explains to them everything about himself that you can find in the Old Testament. So when these guys are writing the New Testament, one, Jesus taught them and said, see this here? It was really me. This is what they were pointing to. So a lot of guys will go back to the Old Testament and they go, well, this is really pointing to Jesus. And it's like, but the New Testament never says that. So be leery. Otherwise, you'll get lost. If the New Testament talks about it, yes. If it says verses such and such and such and such a book are speaking about Jesus, then they're speaking about Jesus. But be careful that you just don't grab a whole bunch of things because you can't, you can't lose the original intention of the Old Testament. So that's where they get this New Testament, Old Testament. Understanding implications of typology. I'm sure I've lost you, and I don't mean to. The main difference rests in how dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists view the relationship between the Testaments. The central issue is Testament priority. Testament priority is a presuppositional preference. So it's, I'm just making this preference. This is my thought. This is how I'm viewing everything. Of one testament over that determines a person's literal, historical, grammatical starting point. So if you're starting from a point of saying, okay, there weren't dispensations, and and the New Testament is going to interpret everything properly into the Old Testament, that's a presupposition. If you start with the New Testament and say, okay, there are things in the New Testament, but the things that point back to the Old Testament doesn't discount how the people in the Old Testament would receive the word to begin with. And that's what happens in this. Again, I don't mean to lose you. All it is saying is this. There are people who approach the New Testament and say you can't deal with the Old Testament unless you first go through the New Testament. And I'm saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is when the Old Testament was written... It was written so that people had an understanding of a meaning from God of what God was trying to say. And they had no idea of anything in the New Testament. But that's fine. So when you study the Old Testament, please figure out what it's saying to the people that it was written to. Does that make sense? Okay, then I can move on. It's difficult. (laughs) So, one important aspect of biblical hermeneutics, the theory of biblical interpretation, is the principle of New Testament priority. At the beginning of the Middle Ages, Augustine of Hippo expressed the New Testament priority with the phrase, and this this phrase, there's nothing wrong with the phrase, the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And there's a lot of truth to that. Augustine meant that the Old Testament contains shadowy types and figures that are only clearly revealed in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament explains the Old Testament. And in many times it does. Hebrews does a wonderful job of looking back at the sacrificial system and explaining things to us. But we need to not discount what it said to the original readers. Dispensationalists think Genesis 17.7 establishes an everlasting promise to national Israel. And they read their interpretation into the New Testament, convinced that God has future plans for national Israel. In a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view, 
Everything hinges on Genesis 17, 7. And that is where the discussion is. I was going to say fight, but we don't fight in churches, do we? Pardon? Yep, right there. (laughs) It's coming. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay? So I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you. From generation to generation... This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants, and it will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. That's the key verses. That's whether people will approach it from an amillennial or a premillennial view. What happens to that promise? And that's key. Remember that it's a promise. So, somebody who's prioritizing the New Testament will go to something like Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, so Galatians 3.16 denies a plural, of, a plural offspring. It's talking about offspring. But remember, when we talked about this, this is a promise to descendants. We get to Galatians 3.16. The promise is to an offspring, which it tells us exactly who that offspring is. That offspring is Christ. They believe this ends any promise made to Israel and that God is dealing with only one people. So they believe when you look at this, it ends everything. We're not talking about two different types of people. Hopefully I didn't explain this properly to you. Okay, let's go. Galatians 5, 3, 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years later, Afterward, that was after Abraham's promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void, if for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes under promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here is what I believe the issue is, and I'll try to sum this up. When was the promise made? The promise was made prior to the law. 
And what they're saying is the law cannot change the promise. It was given before the law. It supersedes the promise. And the promise was that Christ would come. But there was also a promise that they would be in the land forever. So the objection comes to this. They're trying to tell us who are dispensationalists, Brian and I are, I know that, tell us that are dispensationalists that we're talking about two peoples of God then. We're talking about the church and we're talking about Israel as being another people of God. And, and I think they confuse how people are saved. And that's why I think they get two peoples of God. If there's anything that you have to remember, it's that there is one people of God. We've said this before. How is someone saved through all of eternity? How? By grace, by faith. So they try to tell us we're dividing people up. That we have the church as one people. Or I should go, we have Israel as one people. We have the church as another people. Well, I have a couple of questions with that. Did you have to be Jewish to be saved in the Old Testament? Well, yes and no. Because there were lots of people in the Old Testament that weren't Jewish that were saved. Now, when the church, when Israel came along, they encouraged you to go through the, the whole spectrum of the, the um, circumcision and all the rest of that. But prior to that, it was by grace through faith. Under Israel, it was still by grace through faith. Run over here to the other side of the cross. What is it? By grace, by faith. So, while they try to tell us we have two groups, we have the, the Israel and the church, I'm saying no. When it talks about the promise to come, it's still to God's people, but it's, it, it's Israel. But it's not two people, it's one people. It's by grace, by faith. It's always been grace by faith. So while God will work with Israel as a nation here, and He's going to work with them past the church age again and work with them here, it doesn't change people. He's changing what His dispensation is. He's changing in how He's dealing with people. But it's still one people of God by grace by faith. It always has been. It always will be by grace, by faith. Hebrews 11, just go through that. By faith, again, by faith, by faith, by faith, Rahab. So Rahab was saved. She's in Christ's ancestry. Right? By faith, by grace. She was a harlot. By grace, she's saved. Okay, dispensationalists want to maintain a reference point for the meaning of the Old Testament. They desire to give justice to the original authorial intent of the Old Testament as the writers, uh, <clears throat> the Old Testament writers as discovered by a historical grammatical hermeneutic, how you study it. So that's all I'm saying. As a dispensationalist, when we go to the book of Ruth as we did, there's plenty to say to the nation and we try to find the truths of why that book was written and how the people would have understood it. And from that, we're able to draw principles. And we cannot discount those things. Non-dispensationalists, on the other hand, 
will emphasize the New Testament as their reference point for everything and will sometimes trample over the old. And they would get upset if they heard me say that. Because they'd say, no, we don't. Okay, six essential beliefs in dispensationalism. I'll never get through all this. Um, Progressive revelation from the New Testament does not interpret Old Testament passages in a way that cancels the original authorial intent of the Old Testament writers as determined by historical grammatical hermeneutics or studying of the Scripture. Meaning that when you read something in the Old Testament, even if it's a type, it doesn't cancel out the original meaning and it doesn't count, cancel out what we can learn that the Old Testament itself said. We're not canceling things out. It may give us a fuller explanation, a fuller understanding that they had, but it doesn't cancel out what it means to the original reader. Types exist, but national Israel is not a type that is superseded by the church. So Israel set aside, it's not replaced by the church. Israel and the church are distinct, thus the church cannot be identified as the new or true Israel. And you'll hear people will say that. And if you hear them say that, they're not a dispensationalist. It doesn't mean they're not a believer. They're just, they don't study the same and they don't, they don't have the same presuppositions to the text. There is both spiritual unity and salvation between Jews and Gentiles and a future role for Israel as a nation. The nation of Israel would be saved, restored with a unique identity and function in a future millennial kingdom upon the earth. And the sixth one is, there are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham. Thus, the church's identification as seed of Abraham does not cancel God's promises to believing Jewish seed of Abraham. So we don't see them as contradictory. I can be a child of Abraham too, in a spiritual sense, but that does not cancel out the fact that God touched and worked with the nation of Israel here and will again in the millennial work with Israel again. And it's not to say that even in the church age he isn't doing things behind the scene with Israel as he moves along the timeline. Okay. Now, so historical premillennialism um, <clears throat> will fall. That's another one. They're not all millennials, but they're called historical premillennials. They would not be so dispensationalist as, as I am or others would be. So the church was at the forefront vision of Old Testament prophecy. So they always see that the Old Testament's pointing towards the church. Uh, I would view it that the church is hardly mentioned and the Old Testament prophets had no idea. I don't think when you go back to the Old Testament prophets, they had any idea what was going to happen ahead of time. Uh, otherwise, Israel would have been all nice and ready for, for Christ's coming, but they, they didn't have a clue. Historical premillennialism, present age of grace was predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, I think the present age was unforeseen in the Old Testament and only introduced when the Israel rejected Christ. They rejected the kingdom and then... God said, okay, that's fine. I have another plan. It was his plan all along as we understand it, but he was doing it things differently. Uh, historic premillennialism teaches a millennial after the second advent. Uh, we, dispensationalists teach us seven divisions of time. More or less, we went through that earlier. According to their seven uh, dispensations of time, we're in dispensation number six. 
Okay, now we're going to transition to do something a little different. Okay, so we went through this uh, a couple weeks ago just to review it. So we believe we're sort of in here. There's a lot of deception, devastation, and we're leading up to this point of the rapture of the church. Seven years of tribulation. There's going to be a peace treaty and everything's going to be hunky-dory 1960s again. Let's have our peace marches. And then all of a sudden, war, wrath, leading up to Armageddon and the return of Christ and then the millennium, final judgment, new heaven and new earth. That would be the premillennial view pretty much held by this church. You have a question? Oh, I didn't get into all that this time. <laughs> As I said, I was running out of time. Oh, you mean up here? Uh, I think it's about three and a half years in. It, it might start faster than, but that makes a nice little triangle. I, sorry, I was running out of time and I didn't get a chance to go through all the Revelation stuff. No, you can see who did it on the bottom. Um, he put it up. He did a whole bunch of them, put the stuff up, and it was really well done, and it was out there for everybody to use for free. They said that, and it's like, oh, this is handy. Um, some of the charts I did, but not this one. So what is the rapture? I think we'll have time to get through this. So the English word rapture is from Latin. It's rapto. And actually, this word, we sang a song this morning at, at Stony Creek and I leaned over to Marge. I said, that line makes no sense now that I've studied what the word rapture means <laughs> in the sense to drag violently off, to sort of snatch away. So we're going to sing rapture praises. And I'm thinking, we're going to sing violent snatch away praises. It just didn't make sense to me, the use of it. Uh, it comes from the Greek word harpezo, to seize, to catch, to steal, to carry off. Uh, it, it's got a forcefulness to it. So when we talk about the rapture, we're talking that there's just going to be this sudden snatching away of everybody. And it's it's going to happen fast. It's not going to be this slow, easy thing. It's going to be the snap of the fingers and it's done. It's going to be fast. You're not going to know. You're just going to go, I was in the tractor. And you're not even going to wonder where that tractor's going if it makes its way to Lake Huron or not. You're just going to be gone. So, the key verse for the rapture comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. We'll spend our last 10 minutes here. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 answers this question. What happens to the ones we love who have died? These were believers waiting for the return of the Lord. And Paul's going to answer that question for them. Um, so the word, uh, for the word translated asleep, he used the word, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, 
which was, has one of its meanings is to sleep in death. It's the same word you can see that was used to describe Lazarus, who was dead, but he called him asleep. Stephen, David, and of Christ himself when he died on the cross. They use the same word there. It means to sleep in death. So that leads us to a side issue. Soul sleep. <clears throat> I can't think. There's a couple of groups that believe in it. I didn't go look it up. Do you know them, Graham, who believes in soul sleep? We've all heard it. I, I, can't, I can't remember. It's Seventh Day of Venice. One of them believes in soul sleep. So soul sleep is the belief that after a person dies, his or her soul sleeps into the resurrection and to the final judgment. So Luke 8.52. Context of that. We did this in the family brief not that long ago. Uh, Jesus is asked to go to Jairus' house. His daughter was very ill, right? So Jairus was a religious leader, somebody in the synagogue, fairly high up in the local community. And as they're going, Jesus stops and heals a woman. And you're thinking, hey, there's somebody. And they're thinking, somebody's really sick over there. So in the middle of all that, this is said. And he goes into where Jairus' daughter was. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. So people will point at that and go, soul sleeping. She's just sleeping. Well, what happens when we die? According to Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Scripture as a whole doesn't teach this concept of sleeping. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul tells us it's one or the other. So I'm here with you. I'm obviously not with Jesus. You can see that. But if I was to fall down and stop breathing, where am I? I'm with Jesus. And that's what they point to this verse and says it's one or the other. There's not this sleeping in between. Philippians 1.23 I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that's far better. And then back to Luke 16, 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried off by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So that leads me to... Is there a temporary heaven? Luke twenty three forty three, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What did Jesus mean by paradise? I have an issue with the Apostles' Creed. I do not think Jesus went to hell. And that's what it says in the Apostles' Creed. So, is there a temporary Hades? Revelations twenty thirteen through 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Hmm, there seems to be a difference. Oh, it's not there. Ah, oh, we're going to have to skip it. If you go over to Got Questions, I know it's on, the, it's on my thing somewhere, but it didn't drop it in. They have about a five-minute thing that talks about Paradise, Hades. It's well worth the watch. It's just Sheol, Hades, and Hell. Got Questions. They have a video. Well worth the watch. That's what was supposed to drop there for five minutes to watch. It's on the video stick, but I don't know why it didn't take it inside the slide presentation. So context, context, context. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 15. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that, they may, that, you, may be not grie- that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of the command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the air together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we talked about this already a little bit. Paul taught about the end times, obviously, to the church in Thessalonica. But before Timothy visited them, some believers have, had died and the church had fallen under some persecution. So we have two issues. The death of, Lord, the death of loved ones caused them... Are they missing the return of the Lord? What happened? Because they're not here anymore. So what happens to these people was one issue. The second issue, because they started to go under persecution, they were wondering, like, has the tribulation begun? Like, did we miss something here? So when, <coughs> when Paul looks at this, one of the things we have to remember, that these would only be issues... If the, if the soon return of Jesus was imminent. So if Paul wasn't teaching, and if Scripture didn't continue to teach about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, then there'd be no concern for the top two issues. Right? Because we preach Jesus is coming again, the Thessalonians wondered, well, what about those that died? He, he didn't come back for them. What's happening to them? That's why he wrote what he did. Because they were concerned like they missed it. And then as they got persecution, it's like, well, did we all miss it? Like what happened? Did, did I miss out on what was going on? Did, did Jesus come back and, you know, he took Elam Lodge, but he left Forest Baptist Church? I mean, that was their thought pattern. And so when he wrote 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, he was trying to get them to understand the rapture. That yes, Christ will come back at any time, but we don't know yet. But don't worry about it. Because when he comes back, before the tribulation, those who died first will be the first to rise. We're not going to precede them. 
God's got it covered. And if that wasn't such an imminent thing that he was teaching, then none of these would have been questions for the people in Thessalonians. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. (coughs) So everybody was fine. And don't worry. The body will eventually catch up to where the spirit's at. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go through that. So, finally, what is the rapture? Before the tribulation, believers are taken up out of this world and into the presence of the Lord in accordance with John 14, 1 through 3. Some of Jesus' words um, are used as a basis to believe in the rapture. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. So, last thing, uh, we'll have to close off with this. Um, David Geisek does a really good job with this. Um, And I gave you a paper on it. We don't have time tonight to go over it. I know I was pushing a lot to try to get us along this But that is what the Liberty University paper is. But if you were to write down, um, I'll go over it really quickly. It's going to take a couple of minutes. So you'll hear from a lot of people that this rapture deal and this pre-trib deal and this premillennial deal is rather new and the church never taught this before. How can you believe in it? Okay, there's a couple of things to say with that. One, correct, uh, up until Darby in the mid-19th century, the church was not focused in on premillennialism and pre-tribulation. And Darby and... The, how many people have, still have a Schofield Bible? One, a couple back there. So Darby and Schofield were really the pushers of this over the last hundred some odd years, 120, 150 years, I forget exactly. And it's been very influential. But we must remember this. It doesn't mean that it's new. So, the fact that it was not discussed in the past in the church doesn't matter. If it's in the Bible and you can find it in the Bible, then its origin origin is with Christianity. The fact that the church didn't focus on it right away is here nor there. And some people argue, well, everybody before you were mostly um, all-millennial or post-millennial Christians. Well, that's fine. Doctrine is not up for vote. Doctrine is what you find in Scripture. And he, goes, he goes on to say, the key foundations of the tribulation rapture can be found throughout the church. It can be found often and early. So there's this idea that Jesus is coming soon, and you will find that again and again in the New Testament and in the early church. Just because it wasn't all formed, it took the church a while to form the concept of what the New Testament canon was. It took the church a while to form the concept of the Trinity and to flesh that out and to put words around it all. That's fine. That's all that's happened to my understanding with pre-tribulation and pre-millennials. It's taken some time to put it together. Way back in AD 90, Shepherd of Hermaeus said this, 
you have escaped from the great tribulation on account of your faith, and because you did not doubt in the presence of such a beast. Go therefore and tell the elect of the Lord his mighty deeds, and say to them that this beast is a type of the great tribulation that is coming. If then you prepare yourselves and repent with all your heart and turn to the Lord, it will be possible for you to escape it. For your heart, uh, if your heart be pure and spotless and you spend the rest of your days of your life serving the Lord blamelessly. So there's a concept from extra biblical literature that there was this understanding of a tribulation to come. And if you're going to escape that, you needed to be a believer. Uh, Victorinus, late third century. And the heaven withdrew as a scroll that is rolled up for the heaven to be rolled away, that is, that the church shall be taken away. So again, a bit of a hint and an understanding from the commentary on the apocalypse that the church would be taken away, just as we've been teaching tonight and if you teach when you talk about premillennial return of Christ. And then again, the 4th century, why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms the world. For all the saints and the elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and we are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Again, 4th century, long time ago, had this understanding that church would not go through the tribulation. Okay, so if you want to see all his, pre-tribulation is this theory only 200 years old. And it was recorded on March 4th. Isaac does a really good job with this. He presents five points overall. And it's about 25 minutes long and then he answers some questions. It's easy to find on the Enduring Word, Enduring Word uh, website, um, but it's only about 25 minutes long. It's well worth the watch. It'll be one of those rub-ups again to theology and understanding. Uh, so please take the time, 25 minutes, instead of watching Wheel of Fortune. Okay. So, here we have the last little bit. So there's this understanding... I may not be very strong, but there's an understanding back here from what we can see of premillennialism, that there's going to be a rapture. Then from sort of Augustine forward, we're very much in a post-mill time in church history. And then partway through, maybe 1600, somewhere in there, we started to see a lot of amillennialism, and then finally a lot of premillennialism. Uh, Ladd does a lot of work in historical premillennialism, um, but we have a lot there. But that's sort of where we've been through for history, if you look at that. Okay. Um, there's some confusion, and I'm not going to have time to go through this. Well, maybe I can go through this and we'll quit after this one, because I don't want to keep you here too long. There's some confusion between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. The rapture the, is the return of Christ through the rapture. When he raptures us, snatches us away, is only by believers. In the second coming, that return is going to be witnessed by everyone. You can see that in Revelations 1, 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So one's very public. They'll see that we're gone, but they're not going to really see us going. It's just going to be like, where'd they go? All believers are raptured and taken to heaven immediately. Um, and that happens prior to the tribulation. And the second coming happens at the end of the tribulation. And it ushers in the millennium. So, I do attend a church in London. The main pastor is Amil. The, the next guy is Premil. And once in a while you can hear him talk in his teaching. And you go, oh, okay, there's a difference there and there's a difference there. He loves the Lord. Doesn't mean they're not saved, and does not mean they're great Christians. Um, they are, but I can sense that when I listen to him sometimes that he thinks we're in sort of the tribulation period now by the way he talks about the second advent. Um, nothing has to happen at this point. Um, that rapture can happen at any day. You could all be driving home tonight. I might not make it outside the city limits of forest, sorry, the town limits of forest. We could all be raptured. There's nothing that has to happen. And that's it. And I gave you some of these that you can look at that talk about the different senses of the millennial.